How did the secularist movement begin in Britain? When and why was the National Secular Society founded? And why should modern supporters of secularism care about its history? You're listening to the National Secular Society podcast, hosted by Emma Park. In this episode, I will be speaking to Bob Forder about the history of secularism and why it matters today. Bob Forder is a member of the NSS Council. He has done extensive research into the early history of secularism and is currently producing a series of short videos on the origins of secularism and the NSS. A former history teacher, Bob has also written about secularism and social reform for The Freethinker and other publications. Bob, first of all, how would you define secularism and where did the idea first start becoming used in modern history? Well, um, that's, that's, uh, that's one heck of a question, Emma. But I decided to start my series of video talks with Thomas Paine because Paine was the first person in modern times to expound essentially secularist, radical ideas to ordinary people. I don't think Paine was very original because he was influenced by people like John Locke and other philosophers. But he popularised his ideas and moulded them into a coherent whole in the way that ordinary people could understand. In particular, his Age of Reason, which was first published in 1794, was an eviscerating attack on established religion and influenced many who were to follow him. Um, you know, <laughs> the NSS used to celebrate his birthday, a sort of secularist Christmas, I think. It was in the introduction to his book, The Age of Reason, that he wrote those words, my own mind is my own church, which I suppose is a sort of secularist uh, foundation stone. And what were his other main ideas relating to secularism, would you say? Well, I think the thing that he taught more than anything else was that individuals were citizens, they weren't subjects. So <laughs> that challenged, of course, all sorts of other things like aristocracy and monarchy. But I think that is a sort of fundamental fundamentally different way of looking at things which was born in Europe in the French Revolution into the United States in their revolution but I think I must mention George Jacob Holyoke as well because it was he who coined the term in about 1850 he was the man who came up with the term secularism when he was looking for a more positive and acceptable word than atheism. And, and how did he fasten on secularism in terms of the etymology of secularism? Uh, I, it, it I, I can't be sure about that, actually. It derived from the French to in, in, in some way, but I can't remember the logic that he followed. But the important point was he was looking for a word that didn't 
involve people having preconceptions. Okay, um, so so how what was his conception of, of what secularism what secularism should involve, and, and is it something more positive than just atheism? It was well, it was it was a way of approaching life and public affairs that was based on science, that was based on reason, and was based on compassion as well. And. You, you also um, have, have mentioned before um, in previous talks that secularism has meant different things to different people. Um, but but how, how would you say that, that it has done this? Well, you see, if we go to the first three presidents of the National Secular Society, Bradlaugh, G.W. Foote, Chapman Cohen, for them, the words secularism and atheism were virtually synonyms. They really drew little distinction between it. But as the word has developed into the 20th century, it means something rather different. I think it means working towards a free and fair society in which the religious are not accorded particular privileges. So there's a distinction, if you like, between the public sphere and religion. Hence that NSS strapline challenging religious privilege. Do you have to be an atheist in order to be a secularist? No, I don't think you do. You have to just accept that distinction. I have to say, I think it's more difficult for some, it depends on the denomination or the particular church. But if, going back to Paine's idea, my own mind is my own church, if you accept the authority of a priesthood over your thoughts, it's more, di more difficult to be a secularist. And you mentioned um, Charles Bradlaugh, the founder of the National Secular Society. Now, now, the story of secularism in Britain is very much bound up with the early history of the NSS and with Charles Bradlaugh's own career. Could you tell us how? <laughs> Bradlaugh, uh, yes, the great Charles Bradlaugh. Well, he was one of the leading radicals of the 19th century, and for a period I think he was the leading radical. By the third quarter of the century, there was a need for a national organisation to coordinate and support the work of many the many local societies that had grown up in virtually, urban, virtually every urban centre. Bradlaugh himself was an extraordinary orator. He had great organisational skills and it was he who announced the foundation of the National Secular Society on the 9th of September 1866 with himself as acting president. This was confirmed at a conference at Bradford the following year. And you said um, the, the National Secular Society was designed to support the work of the local societies. Were there lots of local secular societies at that point? Yes, all over the place, all over the place. Secularism and radicalism and campaigns for change were very closely linked. I'm not saying that all radicals were necessarily secularists or atheists, because that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be true. But certainly, secularism was one of the driving forces behind radicalism. Okay, and um, 
Given that um, Britain in, in um, the 19th century was a sort of rapidly industrializing country, um, how, how did that did that help or hinder the um, formation of a national secular society? Well, I think in the most obvious way, uh, Britain had a railway network by 1850. So secularist speakers began to travel the country. There also the pamphlets and the newspapers they published could be got around the country more easily than, than the case was before. And ideas spread. And so we find the emergence of the National Secular Society and a secular movement occurring with those developments. Would you say that it, the ideas in particular spread were, were able to spread more easily to, say, the, the working classes, if you like, because I, I suppose in the past um, they could have always spread among among the, the, the elites, but perhaps it was easier in the 19th century for them to spread to a right, wider audience? The NSS was essentially a working class organisation. The people who joined the NSS were almost entirely working class. There's some reasons behind that. The secularists of this time, they were optimists and they were individualists. And I think this is one of the inspiring things about them. They thought that if you could make people free, they would improve themselves. Now, some of the impediments to this freedom were large families. So that's one of the reasons that Bradlaugh was a Malthusian from the outset. That was one of the impediments. The other impediment to their mind was organised religion and the churches because they thought of the churches and particularly the Church of England, they thought of it as the thought control police of their era. Were people from um, different classes from, from the elites ever involved with the secular society or did that have to wait until a much later date or has it never really happened? <laughs> <laughs> it, it did happen much later. Uh, there were always tensions there. I mean, the UK uh, or Britain or Britain or England or whichever you prefer, we all know it's say, uh, we all know the importance of social class in our society and it was even more important in the 19th century than it is now and it was true that respectable atheists didn't really want to mix with organizations the rabble that constituted the nss in many many ways so from time to time uh, bradlaugh made overtures to charles darwin for example to support him over his parliamentary struggle, but he didn't get very far with it. Were, were there any other societies for, for, that people like Darwin joined? Or? Well, we had by the last quarter of the 19th century, we had the growth of the ethical societies in London. Um, and then we, the, the, then these different, the, the different classes tried to use different language, really. So we had T.H. Huxley, coming up with the word agnostic, which uh, he thought sounded a bit less challenging than atheist, uh, for example. 
And um, it was, uh, I don't want to get into a long philosophical discussion, but if we did, I'd be making out the case that I can't really see what the distinction between an atheist and an agnostic is. What Mm. G.W. Foote said was that an agnostic was an atheist with a top hat. (laughs) And what's Charles Bradlaugh's own background, just very briefly? Um, Maybe you could just just tell us, but how how did he come to found the National Secular Society? What was his own class background, if you like? Um, what, what what was his driving motivation? It, it was quite it was quite humble. Uh, it, it was a sort of working class London background. His father was a solicitor's clerk, I think. So they they managed some sort of respectability. But uh, you, you could hardly call them well healed. Um, Bradlaw, well, what, what affected the way Bradlaw thought? I don't know really. Um, he was obviously highly intelligent, largely self educated, read all sorts of things, um, built, on, built on those things, got himself in an argument with a with a clergyman called the Reverend Packer. Packer had liked Bradlaw to begin with as a young man and pointed him as a Sunday school teacher. But then to his horror, um, to Packer's horror, Bradlaw started asking awkward questions like why were there differences in the account of in the accounts of Christ in the Gospels? And this led to all sorts of ruptures and eventually Bradlaw leaving home. And at this point, he went to live with a lady called Elisa Sharples, who was actually the mistress of Richard Carlyle, the first man to publish a birth control book in this country, uh, who had died some years earlier. Hmm. So, and then Charles Bradlaugh ultimately became an MP, didn't he? Yes, he did. After a struggle. Right. after several struggles. Mm. Um, and in addition to Charles Bradlaugh, your own ancestor, another Bob Ford or Robert, Robert Ford, was the first paid secretary of the National Secular Society um, in the same team as Charles Bradlaugh. Um, and he mentioning on the subject of birth control, um, he was also involved in the promotion of, of this birth control literature. Um, could you tell us a bit more about this campaign? Because it seems to be one of the, one of the most important early social reforms in this period? Yeah, you know, Barbara Smoker, one of our longest serving presidents, I think she served 24 years, died just very recently. In her inaugural speech as NSS president, she said... When was that? 1972. Okay, so so 50, 50 years ago, yeah. Yeah, she said that the promotion of the control of human fertility was perhaps the NSS's greatest single achievement. And most significantly, it goes back to 1877, when Charles Bradlaugh and Annie Besant republished a small birth control tract entitled Fruits of Philosophy, which had been for, for which a Bristol bookseller had been prosecuted and was serving a prison sentence. Who would first publish this Fruits of Philosophy book? Oh, it had been published originally in the United States, and it had been published ever since the 1830s, actually, by various free-thinking uh, publishers. All of, them, all of them were free-thinkers. They were all secularists. 
and it had sold sort of penny numbers over the years. But in 1877, this big case came along when Bradlaugh and Bressant, because this bookseller had been prosecuted for selling it, Bradlaugh and Bressant decided to open their own shop, sell it, deliver copies to the local police station and say, come on, prosecute us, which they did. They defended themselves in court. They won their case. And this fruits of philosophy, which by this time was well out of date, began to sell in its hundreds of thousands. And what does the fruits of philosophy actually say? Well, it, it told you how to avoid conception. It right. gave you advice on contraceptive technique. And Knowlton, who, who, who was the author, he um, was a great advocate of chemical douching. Right. <laughs> so that was the, the latest technology at the time. Um, well, um, it, yeah, there were other techniques, but actually, actually, there was a feminist side to this as well. You know, he one of the reasons he favoured douching was it left control to the woman. Interesting. And and what happened after the fruits of philosophy? Were the what were the next handbooks to follow that? Well, you see, it was out of date in 1877. Uh, Bradlaugh and Bassant did rather hesitate over uh, publishing it because they thought, well, actually, this isn't the latest best advice. And so immediately afterwards, Annie Bassant wrote her book or pamphlet. They all cost sixpence. They got sold for sixpence, which ordinary people could afford. Um, and that was called The Law of Population. She withdrew that in 1891 when she let, rather let the side down by joining the Theosophists. <laughs> and then the most popular of all books appeared, and I've been reading a lot about this recently, as a sort of hero of the birth control movement and underappreciated, was Dr. Henry Arthur Albert, whose wife's handbook sold more than any other and stayed in, stayed in print till the 1920s and sold over half a million copies. And now, was Henry Albert um, connected to the National Secular Society? Yes, yes, yes. He was a member of the National Secular Society. He also was an important figure in the Malthusian League, which Bradlaugh and Bassant founded after the 1877 trial. And the Malthusian League went on for year, many years afterwards, promoting the idea of what they called neo-Malthusianism, actually. We call it birth control. And they promoted that for many, many years and, in a way, evolved into the Family Planning Association. Uh, the earlier members of the NSS were involved in other social reforms as well as the birth control movement. Could you tell us about some of the most important ones and the people behind them? Well, I can't resist mentioning another former NSS president now who in the 1960s wrote a book uh, about the NSS called 100 Years of Free Thought. To set, that was to celebrate its centenary in part. But he made the point, you know, that there's barely a social reform that the society hasn't championed and usually championed ahead of anybody else and made themselves very unpopular in doing so. But having said that, I'd like to pick on a couple that are very closely related that run like golden threads. How's that? Golden threads through the history of the of, of secularism. At the beginning of the 19th century, fear of revolution in this country was rife. The government responded by attempting to clamp down on the circulation of nasty, dangerous radical ideas 
particularly those of the type espoused by Payne, who was, in their minds, the bogeyman par excellence, okay? One of their main techniques was the imposition of stamp duties on newspapers, making them too expensive for working people. These stamp duties were furiously resisted by the likes of Richard Carlyle, who I mentioned earlier, who republished all Payne's works in the 1920s and 30s and got seven years in Dorchester jail for his trouble, and by Holyoke and many others. And, and did were those, were those um, works um, sold in such a way that they were available to working people? Yes. Yes, there were, there were, nobody ever made money out of free thought, as far as I know. Um, the, 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 uh, and, and that goes for my own ancestor. Um, it wasn't a profitable business because they were selling very cheap pamphlets to working class people and trying to sell them as cheaply as possible because they wanted to maximise the circulation. They, the the, the um, pamphlets they published were the blogs of their age. It's the way communicated. Fantastic. And any other um, major issues? You mentioned there were two. So yes. one, one of them is stamp duties. What's the other? Well, the, the freedom, of, freedom of the press was one. Yeah. The second, closely related, was a campaign against the blasphemy laws, um, which I, I don't think I really need to explain why that was so fundamental to secularists. They thought you should be able to speak about religion as you could speak about any other matter, and there shouldn't be prohibitions on things that were regarded as disrespectful or rude when you spoke about, about the religious. And here, G.W. Foote needs a special mention because it was he who, at the height of the Bradlaugh problems of the 1880s, decided to take the battle to the what he regarded as the bigots by publishing his extraordinarily irre irreverent, outrageous and satirical newspaper, The, the Freethinker. Now, one of the devices he used in particular, uh, shades of Charlie Hebdo here, but one of the devices he used in particular were cartoons, um, Bible cartoons, as he called them, that were very, very disrespectful. And he was inviting prosecution. He spent a year in jail, and uh, as a result of oh, as a result of this. But what he did do was that he highlighted the absurdity of the situation that. He thought confronted him. And how, how does this, do you think, compare with the situation today? I mean, the, the blasphemy laws in the UK were, were abolished not that long ago. Have mm -hmm. we made a lot of progress or is there still much to do on, on blasphemy in, in the UK? Well, well, you know, if uh, that film Life of Brian had appeared in the 1880s, well, it wouldn't appear because it's a film. But obviously we must have made some progress in that respect. Um, is there more to do? Of course there's more to do. There's a lot more to do. I mean, today we are faced with a situation where we see the growth or potential growth of populism, authoritarianism. To me, secularists, one aspect of secularism 
that golden thread I mentioned earlier has always been about freedom of freedom of speech, freedom of expression. Secularists are liberals if they're and nothing else. Liberals and individualists. Yes. Li liberals and individualists. Absolutely, yes. And, and, and freedom of speech has always been one of the um, National Secular Society's biggest um, campaign issues, as, as um, what you've said illustrates. A golden thread, Emma, a golden a thread. A golden thread, absolutely, yes. Um, and why do you think, Bob, why is it important for NSS members today to know about the society's history in the 19th century? Why does it still matter? Oh, thank you so much for that question, Emma, because this sounds like a sort of, this is a personal campaign I'm on here. <laughs> Let me suggest some reasons why his, the history of this wonderful society is so important. First, most obviously, there are lessons to be drawn from the past. Second, there's some cracking stories, and I hope I've given you a little, a little flavour, and there's more in my series of videos. There's some crackies, cracking stories about extraordinarily brave people who deserve to be remembered. Third, because history, organisations with a history, gain a sort of legitimacy from their history. If you've got a past, particularly a heroic past, it can only add to your credibility and gravitas. And fourth, because it provides us with an identity which helps bind us together and provides for a sense of purpose and direction. Now, sometimes when I've said all that, sometimes people still look a bit quizzical. And so I say one other thing to them as well. I ask them to ask themselves, why, if the history counts for so little, why do the churches make such a fuss about theirs? Absolutely. Well, history is, is certainly central to identity, and I'm sure you as a history teacher know all about that. Um, but, but on this topic, certainly when I was studying history at school, I don't remember learning anything about secularism or its place in British society. Do you think that secularism should be taught in schools and should it be on the curriculum? And if so, how would you teach it? Would you teach it as part of history or politics or religious studies or what? Well, to give you the directest answer, should it be taught? Of course, yes, it should be. But it's a it's a very difficult issue, actually. Certainly, I would suggest that the work and careers of secularist heroes like Payne, Carlyle, Holyoke, Bradlaw, Besant deserve a higher profile. In fact, to be honest, any profile would help. But the other difficulty is that secularism is essentially a political rather than a religious concept. And I regret to say that politics or civics education is not a long suit for British education. Some years ago, David Blunkett, when he was Secretary of State for Education, endeavoured to promote citizenship education as a compulsory part of the curriculum. It never really developed, it never really happened for a variety of reasons, despite the efforts of, well, I had a go, but, you know, it was stony ground. I think that this whole issue needs re revisiting, and it does highlight the fact that the work of the NSS is far from complete. 
Yeah, absolutely. So you, you would put secularism in civics education and you would advocate for a greater role of civics education in, in the school curriculum. Most certainly, most certainly. But there are real challenges to achieve that. Bob Forder, thank you so much for highlighting the importance of the work of the National Secular Society and for talking to me today. Thank you, Emma. Thank you very much. That was episode 24 of the National Secular Society podcast, hosted by Emma Park. If you would like to help us challenge unfair religious privilege and support freedom of and from religion in Britain today, why not become a member of the NSS? Full details are on our website at secularism.org.uk forward slash podcast. If you like this podcast, you can find more episodes and more information about this episode on the website. Thanks for listening. <laughs>